of the house. We're not going to do that. But thank you all very much. If you have your Bibles, woo! That was hot. Real hot. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open to Luke chapter 19. Uh, we're going to be looking at a familiar passage this morning, but one that is sort of odd to be looking at right now. You've heard of Christmas in July. Well, this is Palm Sunday in September. Uh, and so I, I feel like we need the kids up here waving some palm branches or doing something. But uh, maybe taking it out of its normal context will help us to see it uh, with fresh eyes. And so let's hear God's word together. Beginning uh, in Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. Let's hear God's word. It says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. Throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, as we approach now your holy word, we need you to speak to us. We need you to, to drive this word down to our hearts that we might see you, so that we might live by these words, most of all, so that we might see the King, see our King, King Jesus. Lord, we pray that your Spirit would work in us in this time. Focus our hearts, focus our minds, keep us from those things that distract us. Lord, these are the words of life, and we need to hear them more than anything else. So be with us now, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. The king goes public. Uh, well, it seems, you know, that in our modern world of uh, social media and unfiltered access, that, that people are constantly going public with some aspect, almost every aspect, of their lives. Uh, sometimes those details are big and they need to be put out there. You know, we're getting married or we're having a baby or we've got a new job. You know, whatever that may be. Those are, are good things to put out into the world. Sometimes those details, though, are mind-numbingly mundane, and you know the reality of that. You know, I just ate a taco, or I just I took a nap. Not groundbreaking things. Maybe they need to be known, maybe, but 
not groundbreaking. But either way, you know, whether the details are really big or, or whether they are really small, my point is that there's very little in our lives uh, that is hidden. There's very little that, that is kept private, right? And as a result of that, gone are the days where we would have to anticipate, where we would have to, to look forward to some sort of big announcement, right? We know people's lives so well that we can guess, we can think about, we can anticipate what may come, but there's no, there's no build-up, there's no real tension. Uh, I saw this week where Apple ha- had unveiled some of their new products, the, app, the iPhone like 576 or something, I don't know what it was. And, and honestly, I don't keep up with all this stuff, so I don't know how you know, secretive it was supposed to be, I don't know how big of a deal it was supposed to be, but, but I imagine that there was very little that Apple could have done this week or could have presented uh, that had not been considered or thrown out at some corner of the internet, right? Somebody had leaked information somewhere or somebody had already guessed everything possible that they could do. The point is, is the big announcement, it probably was not all that big, right? And what I'm trying to say to us is even in our own lives, in our personal lives, that's true as well. There there is no wonder. There is no waiting to see what will happen next. Now, I say all of that to say I hope we recognize that as we turn to the pages of Scripture, as we consider first century people, first century Christians, uh, they certainly didn't have this same sort of problem, right? They didn't have social media. They didn't have a means to put their lives out there. And so announcements really could be big. They, They really could grow. And what I want you to recognize here is that as Jesus, particularly, as he finally arrives on the outskirts of Jerusalem, I think the anticipation, I think that the sense of wonder at what might happen next, it had to be at a fever pitch. It had to be for those who were listening, the tension had to be through the roof, right? If anybody had really been listening to the things that Jesus had said, and also to the things that he was not saying, they had to wonder. You you realize as we've gone through the book, at least three times already, Jesus has predicted his death and suffering, right? People have heard him say exactly what he had come to do. Not only that, but Luke has made it very clear to us that, that... Jesus has been very purposefully pushing towards Jerusalem. Now, it's hard to know if the people in his time were actually recognizing that, but us as readers, and certainly Luke's readers, ought to anticipate that. Theophilus ought to see that Jesus is is pushing to this place. And so clearly, something big is coming. At the same time, though, we know, too, that Jesus has really gone out of his way to try to prevent vent word about him from getting out. You know, he has told people, hey, don't, don't tell all of these things that you have seen, all these things that you have experienced. Don't go and tell the things that I have done for you. And we know that, that people have done that. They have gone and spread the word. And certainly the speculation about Jesus, it had to be sort of rampant at this point. But what I'm trying to to drive across to you is that all of this, what has been said and what has not been said, what has been seen and what has not been seen, all of it has built the tension and all of it has perfectly set the stage 
for a really big announcement. And Jesus does not disappoint here. Christ, the King, He goes public. And in so doing, He not only reveals much about Himself, but He also sets into motion the events that will in just a week's time lead Him to the cross. He sets into motion here the events that will lead Him to die for His sinful people. And so, what I want us to consider today is what exactly is it that Jesus says about himself here? I want us to ask, do we believe what he says? And finally, and maybe most importantly, are we worshiping him accordingly? Again, as Christ goes public, do we recognize him as the king he reveals himself to be? Well, friends, that's the question before us, so let's look at it together. The first thing I want you to notice in this passage is the king who was prophesied. The king who was prophesied. As Jesus reveals his identity, uh, he begins by making it clear that he is the Messiah. He, He is the Davidic king that the prophets had spoken of throughout the pages of the Old Testament. Look at what happens there. They, they draw near to Bethpage and Bethany. They come near to the Mount of Olives, and he calls two of his disciples together, and he says, go into the city to retrieve this colt, this donkey that Matthew reminds us is what it really is. It's a donkey. He says, go and get it. Uh, it's one that no one has ever ridden on. And if anyone gives you any trouble at all, you just tell them that the Lord has need of it. And of course, they go, and they find it just as Jesus has said. The colt is there. The donkey is there. The man asks, why are you untying it? So the Lord has need of it. He gives it to him, and they bring it back. Now, It's tempting to stop here and to speculate about just exactly what has occurred in this part of the story. You know, commentators are divided over this, whether this was a miracle that Jesus performed, that the Holy Spirit had revealed this to him, that that the the cult would be there, or was this some sort of like prearranged event? Like the the Lord has need of it was a code that, that would give them the donkey. This was kind of a a livestock exchange. Now, we could stop and consider that for a while, and I don't think any of us are going to come to the conclusion. We're not going to be able to figure it out. The the text doesn't give us enough. And so what I want you to see is that the question is not how does Jesus do this. The question we should all be asking is why does Jesus do this? Why does he enter into the city, and why does he want, of all things, A donkey. Think about it. This is the creator of heaven and earth. He owned all things. He could have a donkey. He could have the grandest chariot, the greatest horse, whatever he wanted. It all belonged to him. And so why does he choose a donkey for his royal transportation? Well, there's two things I want you to see here. First, he does it in fulfillment of prophecy. He does it to fulfill all things. And particularly here, he has in mind Zechariah 9.9. You can turn there if you want to, but I'll read it to you. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
As one commentator says, Jesus, he needed this donkey to serve as a prop in the drama of redemption. I like that. That's, that'll preach right there. That's good. When you think about redemptive history, the unfolding of it in the pages of the Old Testament, here Jesus sees it as well. And he is declaring for everyone to see, for everyone to know, the, the disciples, the people along the road, particularly the Pharisees, we're going to come back to that, but he is making it loud and clear to them, for any devout Jew, they would have seen what Jesus is doing and they would have said, there's the Messiah. There is the King. He has finally arrived. And notice, without being prompted, they respond that way there in verse uh, 38. They say, and we're going to come back to this, but they say, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. They, they recognize exactly who Jesus is saying He is without being told. The problem, though, is though they, they recognize the prophecy fulfilled, they fail to recognize the kind of king that the Old Testament had declared was coming. And that leads us to the second thing that I think is important to recognize when Jesus picks this donkey of all things to ride in on. Not only is he fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, but did you notice in Zechariah 9.9 what it says about the king? He's riding on a donkey but he's also humble, right? Here Jesus is revealing much about his character, about the kind of king he is. In fact, I would submit to you that he is revealing himself the way he loves his people. Think about it. You know, when we talk about the kingly office of Christ with the kids, I'll often say to them, hey, what does a king look like? What should a king look like? And of course, they always have all the right answers. They say, oh, he should be handsome. He should be well-dressed. He should have a horse and trumpets, and he should have a castle. He should be powerful in every sense, in his stature, in the things that he owns. And look, if we're honest, that's what we all would expect in a king, right? We, we have that this week. We, we've seen a king come into office, right? And you see all the pomp and all the circumstance and all of these things happening in the world right now. That's what we expect when a king becomes king. But what is Jesus like? Remember back to Isaiah 53. Back in, in verse 2. It says, for he grew up before him like a young plant. This is the servant of God, right? He grew up before him like a, a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, Jesus, when he walked down the street, when you saw him, you wouldn't have said, hey, there's the king. Much like David and his brothers, they, they brought all of David's brothers before and every time, this is the guy, right? This is the one. He, he looks like a king. Then Jesse said, well, there's one more. He's just a little guy. He's, he's a shepherd. He's out there in the back. He, he's not very kingly. He said, That's the one. Here, Jesus, he has no, there's nothing about him looks-wise that would declare he's the king. So he doesn't have the look. Well, what about the stuff? Maybe he's got enough stuff to declare himself king. Well, see him here 
on a borrowed donkey, an unbroken colt, with no possessions outside of the clothes on his back. He has no castle, right? He has nowhere to lay his head. He says that of himself. All right, well, he doesn't have the look. He doesn't have the stuff. Maybe maybe he has the, the power. Friends, from an earthly perspective, what had Jesus shown about himself? Certainly he had done great miracles. But think about it. Had he come bending people to his will? Did he come forcing them to bow in his presence? Has he come with a sword crushing all of his enemies at his feet? Not yet. At this point, what has he said in Matthew 11? He says, come to me, all you who are weary, all you who labor, for I am gentle, I am lowly and meek in heart, and I will give you rest for your souls. Does that sound like a powerful king? Not from our perspective, right? So he doesn't have the look, he doesn't have the stuff, he doesn't have the power. Didn't look like a king. Now look, we, we know that Christ is the King of Kings, who owns a cattle on the thousand hills, who has all authority and power. The disciples have seen him transfigured. They've seen his glory. We know that he will one day subdue all enemies under his feet, and that at his name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, willingly or not, that he is Lord. That he is the king. That day is coming. But here, in his incarnation, Jesus humbles himself. The king of the whole universe. Let that sink in on you right now. See him on a donkey. Your king. The king of all things. Riding into this town, the city of David. In this way. Why? Why would he do it? He's not the king that we expect. But friends, he is the king that we as sinners need, right? He's the savior that we need. Here's the king that you can flee to in your sin. Here's the king that you can spill your guts to when you are loaded down with guilt. Here's the king that you can rest in when all else seems to fail. He is gentle. He is meek. He is lowly in heart. And in his great humility today, he invites you, even you, to come into his presence to receive the great salvation that only he can bring. He purchased this salvation with his royal blood. We sing the song, Man of Sorrows. What a name. The Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. And here it is. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Friends, this is on display here in this passage. It's the King who was prophesied. Secondly, in this passage, I want you to notice the King who is worthy of all worship. He's worthy of all worship. Though it will not last, and though they clearly do not truly understand what they're doing, for now the people, that they seem to see Christ for who He is, and notice that they respond accordingly. First, the disciples. The disciples who are closest to Him. And you know, if we had time, we, we could take this, this small section out and make a whole sermon on it. Because this is an intimate moment between the people who were closest to Jesus and Himself. 
He is the one who they realize is worthy of all honor. And so they worship him with the means that they have, which are humble means. Notice, they take their cloaks off and they throw them on the donkey. What are they doing? They're essentially making the king a royal saddle. They are ma- no king would ride in bareback. No, no king would ride that way. So they're making for him a saddle with their cloaks, with the things that they have. And then what is probably the the most touching moment of of the whole thing. They don't allow him to, to try to jump up on the back of the horse. They don't bring a stool to let him climb up. It says they lift him up. They lift him up and they place him there. They're king. They place him on these this humble transportation. Secondly, you notice that the crowds as they go along. They they join in as well. What have the disciples done with their cloaks? They've thrown them on the donkey, right? So who is it that is throwing their cloaks in the road before him? It has to be the multitude, right? It has to be the great crowd that is along the road there. And essentially, what they're doing is rolling out the red carpet for the king. Philip Ryken in his commentary says, they're saying, King Jesus, you are so much greater than I am, so much more worthy of honor that when your donkey walks all over my clothes, it is not an insult to me, but it is my great privilege. They are worshiping, worshiping him. They acknowledge him with their actions, and then notice they acknowledge him with their voices. That They sing this refrain from Psalm 118, which is a messianic psalm. Now, I would submit to you that all the psalms are messianic in their way. But this one particularly points us to the king who is to come. And again, they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. For a moment, the the people there, they do exactly what they were created to do. With their actions, with their voices, seemingly, though they are not, but seemingly with their whole hearts. They worship their creator, the great king of heaven. But of course, uh, as is always the case, uh, there are those there who, who will not join in, and there are those there who do not appreciate what they are seeing. And again, recognize, friends, that it is the Pharisees who are witnessing this whole thing. We're going to come back to that again, but recognize that it is the Pharisees who say to Jesus, stop this. They see in the pages of the Old Testament that there's only one who is worthy of worship. There's only one who can receive the praise of men. And that is God himself. And So they see Jesus riding in and they're praising him and Jesus is accepting it and they're thinking in their minds, this is blasphemy. But, side note... What is Jesus declaring about himself? In accepting the praise as he's about to do, what is he saying about who he is? Not only is he the king, but he is God. He knew the Old Testament better than those Pharisees. He knew exactly what he was doing when he accepted that worship. He's declaring himself to be God in the flesh. These men, they say, stop it. And notice his response. He answers, I tell you, if these were silent, these men, if they were silent, these women, these who were praising, then the very stones would cry out. Again, uh, friends, there's a day coming where we're going to see that. (laughs) 
You know, we, we live in a world that, that seems to be uh, so against us as Christians and what we believe. I, just today, this morning, I, I read an article. Uh, the headline was, Should I Prevent My Daughter from Hanging Out with My Evangelical Neighbors? Now, that's, that's a new thing in our world, right? Now, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, nobody, of course, you, that was the normal thing to do. But now we're living in a world where no longer are, are our views accepted. We're living in a world that is constantly in every way trying to prevent the worship of our King. But notice what Jesus says here. That praise, it will not be stopped. The King, He will be worshipped. Even if the very creation has to cry out, the King will be praised. That's a great encouragement to you and I today. If you are truly resting in Christ, then friends, no matter how bad things may be outside of our walls, out in the world, our King will be worshipped. The question is, is will He be worshipped by you? Will you bow before Him? with your actions, with your voices, with your very lives? Will you acknowledge His reign over all things? Will you declare Him worthy? And will you proclaim, as Ben has reminded us, to a lost and dying world the excellencies of this Savior? The reality is, is every time we gather together as we are now, every time we confess His name, every time we bow our heads in prayer in public, Every time we we discipline our kids the way that the the Bible calls us to, every time we stand up for Him by following His Ten Commandments, friends, we are declaring to a lost world that, yes, He is worthy. He's worthy of all we have. He's worthy of our lives. Again, will you today, will you worship this King? He's the one worthy of our praise. And then thirdly and finally in this passage, I want you to notice that He is the King who weeps. He's the king who weeps. As the procession moves on, Jesus comes to this place where he can look out over Jerusalem. And as he surveys the city, notice he begins to, to weep. Actually, the, the words, they, they seem to mean there that, that it's more of a bursting into tears. It's not just a, a little one tear coming down. But Jesus, in his heart, it, it's broken here. Rather than, and it's, it's a, a sharp contrast, right? To what has just happened. People are rejoicing. People are celebrating him as king. And now what is he doing? He is weeping over this. Rather than, than celebrating. Rather than, than just bathing in the praise. That was rightly his. He looks out over this city. He weeps. Why? He weeps because he knows the reality of the hearts of the Jews. He knows that soon all their praise will turn to scorn. That when they find out that that he's not the king they expected, they will reject him. And in so doing, they will miss the salvation that he came to offer, even to them. That the salvation that God had declared all the way back in Genesis 3.15, right? This heritage that was theirs through their father Abraham. They will miss it. Not only that, but he knows that they will receive judgment. His judgment for the rejection that they will, they will commit of him. They will receive 
rejection in the short term. In A.D. 70, you know that the temple is destroyed. The Romans come in and they, just, they destroy everything. But then there will also be a final judgment. A, a judgment at, at His final coming. No stone will be left unturned. No, no rebel will be left standing. Christ weeps here. The King weeps here over the loss and the rebellion of sinful men. May we never live under the assumption that that God rejoices, that that He takes pleasure in the destruction and the death of the wicked. Yes, His justice, His holiness demands that judgment be a reality. It can be no other way. He is not vindictive. He, he is not standing up there rejoicing in it all. As 2 Peter 3 says, He is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. As we have seen, Christ came to seek and to save the lost. His heart is for sinners, so much so that here, He weeps. He weeps because He knows what's coming. Today, the, the, the free offer of the gospel, the, the invitation to come to Jesus, it stands. It stands for, for each one of us. He loves you. Even in your sin, He loves you. So much so that, that He allows this whole scene, this whole triumphal entry as we refer to it as, He allows it all to play out in this way. And that's where I want to leave you. As we conclude this, I want you to take a step back from the details. Take a step back from the road. Take a step back from the donkey. Take a step back from all of these things that we've seen just for a second and recognize the bigger picture of what's happening here. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem that day, what is He doing? Yes, for everyone else, this is a triumphal moment. The disciples surely are rejoicing over it. The king, finally, he has declared himself. But what's happening in Jesus' heart? What's he doing? He is declaring himself to those who will condemn him. He is setting into motion the events that will lead to the cross. The Pharisees now have no choice but to try to kill him. He has committed blasphemy on the highest level. And so now, now they must act. That's why up until this point he's kept things secret. That's why he's tried to prevent them from knowing. Here, Jesus once again, and we've said this, every act of his life, but particularly here, he is submitting himself to the Father's plan. He's committing himself to redemption. I don't think it's too much to say that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that day, He rode in with you, with me, with His people on His heart. He rode in with us on His mind. Everyone else is praising. Everyone else is celebrating. But His heart is heavy. He knows the loss that's coming. He knows what He is about to endure. And so, yes, in many ways, this is a triumphal entry. But more than that, this is an act of redemption. This is an act of Christ sealing His fate. and He does it for you and I. He does it for us. 
If you did not before, do you see now how glorious this King is? Do you see His great love for you? He is worthy of all praise. He is worthy of all worship. He willingly laid down His life for you by going public with His kingship here. What was rightly His goes public. Will you in response trust in Him? Will you worship Him? That's the response if you don't know Christ. If you do know Him today, friends, shout it from the rooftops. Worship just like those people did on the road. Praise Him with everything you have and then go out and tell somebody about it. Go tell people about this great King as we pray together. Father, we rejoice in Christ our King. The King who humbled Himself. The King who stood in our place. Who rode in on a donkey. The Creator of all things who could have had anything He wanted. was rightly His. He rides in humble. He rides in knowing He's going to the cross. He rides in to save His people. Lord, may we bow in His presence. May, may we worship Him today. Lord, fill us with wonder and awe at what this great Savior has done for us. And may that awe and that wonder overflow in our lives as we leave this place so that many, through, through our testimony, through our words, through our actions, will come to know Jesus as their Savior. Lord, we rejoice today. We, we praise You that You are so good and so merciful and so gracious to even us. And We praise You in the name of Jesus. Amen. In response, let us now rejoice, for the Lord is our King. Hymn number 310 gives us the means to do so. So let's rejoice as we sing together.